We are continuing our Gospel of John series today with a title, message entitled, Are You a Consumer or a Worshipper of God? And we're going to be in John chapter 2 if you want to turn there in your Bibles. And we're going to start out today just by asking a question. How many people here had a father who was a disciplinarian of the family? Mom might yell at you, but usually what would happen is she would say, wait until your father gets home. That is some of the most dreaded words that any kid can hear is wait until dad gets home. Because now you have to watch the clock for several hours. I remember doing that when I was a kid. My, my mom would, I would be doing something and, and she would just be getting so fed up with me and, and then she'd be on the phone with dad and she'd slam the phone down and said, you wait until your dad gets home. Of course, it's probably like 11 o'clock in the morning now and now I have to wait for 4.45 for dad to come home. And so you're watching the clock. You know that he's going to come in. He's going to be angry. He's, going to, he's, he's coming home. He's been fixing transmission and cars all day. He's going to be crabby. He's going to be all you know, bruised up and cut up. And, and he's, it's been hot and everything. He's, going, he's, going to, he's not going to appreciate having to come home and, and discipline his oldest son. And you know, my dad would come in the door, and I'd just be in my room kind of shaking and my dad, you know, you'd be thinking like he kind of showed up as Clint Eastwood in The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Kind of showed up in your door, little cigar between his teeth. You kind of hear that whistle that was in that movie, that, you know, kind of. And then he'd be like, boy, your mom told me what you did. And then you would hear the belt start coming off. And then my dad would kind of fold the belt in half and kind of just give it a little whack like that just to make his point. And then, he would, then I would get the lecture. And then I would get the couple whacks with the belt just to kind of make that lecture stick a little bit. A good father is one that demands respect from his children. And ideally, a good father also earns that respect. And God is a good father. But God does demand our respect. And God has done everything he can to earn our respect. Therefore, when it comes to how we approach him and how we worship him, it matters how we do it. And in a biblical account that we are about to read and watch, Jesus enters the temple on one of the most holy days in Judaism's calendar. And that's the day of Passover. In ancient Judaism, the temple was a center of worship. Everything revolved around coming to Jerusalem twice a year to worship. It doesn't matter if you were hundreds of miles away, you came to the temple on that day. And Jesus, being the faithful and observant Jewish man that he was, comes to the temple as required. It's not the first time he's ever been to the temple. I mean, he's 30 years old. He's come there probably 25 or 30 times since Joseph has brought the family back to Nazareth. So he knows what to expect when he comes in. But this time, for the first time, he's coming as Messiah. He's coming as the Son of God. And he looks at what's happening in God's house, and he has a very, very strong reaction to it. In essence, Daddy is home. And he is not pleased with what he sees. So in a moment, James is going to click over there, and we're going to watch a visual representation that's going to read and show us uh, the story of the scriptures that we're going to be reading today in John chapter 2, starting in verse 13. It's from the movie, The Gospel of John. 
It was almost time for the Passover festival, so Jesus went to Jerusalem. people selling cattle, sheep, and pigeons, and also the money changers sitting at their tables. out of the temple, both the sheep and the cattle. He overturned the tables of the money changers and scattered their coins. He ordered those who sold pigeons. Take them out of here! Stop making my father's house a marketplace! His disciples remembered that the scripture says, My devotion to your house, O God, burns in me like a fire. The Jewish authorities came back at him with a question. What miracle can you perform to show us that you have the right to do this? Tear down this temple, and in three days I will build it again. Are you going to build it again in three days? It has taken 46 years to build this temple. But the temple Jesus was speaking about was his body. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for the Gospel of John, for the picture of Jesus that it shows us. And I ask, Father, that we come to understand through the reading of your word this morning exactly what got you so angry and exactly how it applies to us today, Father. Lord God, we commit this time to you. Open our hearts and our minds to hear from your word. And we ask this in your name. Amen. The Jewish system that Jesus was walking into there was very exact in its requirements of what God wanted. Passover itself had several requirements that had to be done according to the law of Moses to be acceptable in God's sight. And we're going to review a few of those requirements this morning just to put our, our minds into, in, into why Jesus reacted as he did. The first part of the prescribed worship is found in Deuteronomy 16, 
We're focused on verse 2 as it relates to what Jesus is reacting against. In Deuteronomy 16, verse 2, it says, Sacrifice as the Passover to the Lord your God an animal from your flock or herd at a place the Lord will choose as his dwelling for his name. So let's break down that, that verse there. An animal from your flock. Now every Jewish family back then, virtually all of them, whether you lived in a city or not, had some sort of animal collection around them. They kept chickens, they kept goats, they kept sheep, they kept cattle. All these were food sources, milk sources, cheese, all that kind of stuff, um, eggs, whatever. They had all these animals around. They would breed these animals, they would sell these animals, and they would eat these animals. So they had animals around them at all times. And because of this, God put this law down that it was supposed to be an animal from their flocks. And whenever an animal had a litter, they'd pay very close attention to the, the baby cows, the baby sheep, whatever is being born. They'd pay very close attention to that. And they would concentrate in particular on the firstborn. And if they found one that didn't have any obvious imperfections, no disfigurements, no injuries from the birth, they would immediately take that animal and segregate it from the other animals. It would nurse by itself. It wouldn't be around the other animals. They would take this animal actually into the house and keep it in a special room. They would, do, they would feed it specially. They would constantly groom it, constantly make sure it was safe and healthy. In many ways, this animal was more like a beloved pet than it was just, you know, kind of one of those animals that we keep out back. As the animal grew, they feed it only the best of food. They protect it from everything and to keep it pristine until that time of Passover. And the reason that this law was so exacting about the care of the Passover sacrifice, whether it be a lamb or a bird or whatever, is that God was showing them that the worship of God wasn't just a once-a-year thing. In, a, in the way that we look at it, it's not just a Christmas and an Easter thing. Or for them, it wasn't just a Yom Kippur or Passover thing. It was an everyday thing. Every day they had to look after this animal. Worship it was something that had to occupy a significant part of every day in our life through the caring of this animal. And that was the first part, that they were to pick this worthy animal from their own flock or their own herd. God also said this act of worship had to happen at a specific spot, and in this case, the temple in Jerusalem. Now, why did God ask that? Why would God tell people who lived in Galilee, who had a rival nation in between them and and the temple in Jerusalem, why would, he have to, why would he tell them to come at least 120 miles over rocky terrain through at least two river, big river fordings that they would have to just about swim across? They're in danger of being robbed or killed along the way from the bandits and the revolutionaries and everybody else that was around at that time. Why would he demand such a thing from his people? Well, the first reason was to experience corporate worship. You see, they might worship in their synagogues and they might worship in their home, but there is something about coming together as a group of, of believers in Jesus Christ that is powerful. Amen. I remember when I was um, 
fairly new in the faith. It was a time that Promise Keepers rose. Anybody remember the Promise Keepers movement? It was a huge men's movement that, that encouraged men to be godly, become godly men, godly fathers, godly leaders in their home. And I remember we drove down to Indianapolis and, to go to one of these Promise Keepers conventions, and they held it in the Superdome. And we got in there, and we're in line, and as I'm walking up you know, into the stadium, I start hearing the worship start. And you stood, and I got to the top, and I looked, and there's 65,000 men all singing, How Great is Are You, God? That, it was incredible to experience. Just the spirit of all those believers lifting up their hands to God and singing praises to him. There's just something incredible about that kind of, of corporate worship experience. And that's why... Church attendance is so important. That corporate worship is not just for the benefit of the worshiper. It's for the benefit of everyone around them. And it shows, it serves as a witness to the glory of God, not only to the believer, but to the unbeliever. Which is the reason the temple was there. The temple wasn't there just to serve the, Jude the Jews of the time. It was there to serve as a visual representation to the entire world of the glory of God. Amen. Another reason that they had to all go to the temple two times a year was to pay the temple tax. Within the law of Moses, all males above the age of 19 had a responsibility to support the temple, all the priesthood, all the operations, in keeping with their economic station in life. So if you were poor, you didn't have to give as much, but if you were rich, you had to give a little bit more. It was, it was pretty equitable and very fair. And that's what the tithe was supposed to go for. 10% of their income went to the support of the Levites, but the support of the temple was another matter. And if you added up all their tithes and offerings that they were responsible for bringing over the course of the year, it added up to about 26.5% of their income. That's a lot of money that they would have to give. And often this, this temple tax was paid at Passover when God required them to be there anyway. And the last people that, or last reason that God called them to travel to the temple is that Passover was the midpoint of the Jewish year. You see, the Jewish year starts around when our September is, on a day called Rosh Hashanah. Right before that is Yom Kippur, which is the Jewish day of atonement. That's when the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and sacrifice an animal for the, the, to, um, to um, pay for the sins of the entire nation. Passover was six months prior to that, and it served as a midway point to keep people spiritually on track for a year. It didn't mean they couldn't come to the temple any other time, but they were required to come to the temple at these two times. So that's the what and, and the why behind the Passover regulations that Jesus was experiencing. So let's look at the problem that drove Jesus into a rage. Now, as we keep in mind all these regulations and keep in mind all these rules regarding Passover worship, now think that God incarnate, Jesus, the long-awaited Messiah, walks into the outskirts of the temple. Jesus is coming in hoping to see joyful and expectant worshipers, happy to come to temple and experience Father God. And is that what he sees? No. He sees animals for sale. 
He sees money changers, tax collectors, all crowding out areas that were to be reserved for worship. And the worst part of this it was, all of this was approved and managed and governed even by the temple leadership. Now, why did Jesus go crazy? We saw, we saw the, the actor, um, Henry Ian Cusack, just really portray Jesus as going full Hulk on these people. The only thing he didn't do is rip off his clothes and turn green. I mean, he just went totally nuts on these people. Why did Jesus get so angry? We see the reason this market existed was become the people, because the people coming to temple had gotten lazy. They didn't want to go through the trouble of raising some lamb or animal from birth to one year of age and then have to carry it miles upon miles upon miles to Jerusalem to offer it to God. So some local businessmen, some entrepreneurs seized an opportunity, decided to open up a few stalls for acceptable animals for sale. And the message being sent to the people was this, you don't have to go through all that trouble of raising a lamb from birth to one year of age. I mean, after all, that's kind of hard work. Let's, let us do it for you. We'll do it for you for a price. We'll do it for you. Why should you be inconvenienced when, you can, when we can do your worship of God for you? Oh, and um, pastor, yeah, we know we're kind of breaking the law of Moses here. Here's a little bit of extra money in the offering plate. Just look the other way for me. And for the people, you're thinking, well, that's a pretty good deal. You know, they, they don't have to worry about all that. They're, somebody else is going to take care of this for them. Except that most commentators and historians put the markup of these animals at 300 to 500% of what that animal would normally cost. Think of what that would do for a poor family, trying to just come and worship God. It's a little unjust. But what happens if a person says, you know what, no, the law of Moses says I have to raise this animal. And I'm going to do my absolute best. This animal is perfect. I'm going to come and bring it to temple and, and offer it to God because that's what he told me to do. Guess who gets to inspect that animal? The people selling the animals to everybody else. Guess what? There's an imperfection in your animal. You better buy one of mine. I have some perfect ones right here. And then that animal gets tossed back in the cage and just sold to somebody else. You think that's a conflict of interest and a system ripe for corruption? Not only that, but when you buy that animal, you're told, you know what, I'm sorry, all you have is Roman coins? Well, whose picture is on a Roman coin? Caesar's. Caesar's worshipped as a god. How dare you bring Roman currency into, into God's house and expect to pay your tithe with, god, with Caesar's money? Go over there to the money changers and buy some temple currency. Okay, well, wait a minute. I'm only getting pennies, literally pennies on my dollar here. The worst part about all this, and I hinted at it before, all this was done with the permission and supervision of the priesthood. Their spiritual leadership was giving permission and even encouraging this. They were fleecing God's people for the right to worship God. But all this, and, and we wonder why Jesus went full on fight club here. 
why he just went so crazy. And all this started because people didn't want the inconvenience of proper worship. They had a consumer mentality when it came to their spirituality. A consumer's mentality says, I want church my way. I want it in my time according to, to my preferences and tastes. If you can't give it to me, I'll go somewhere else. That sound familiar? Sounds like Christianity in the last 20 years in America. We saw it in Kenosha before we moved up here about eight years ago. Flyers started showing up in people's mailboxes, and these were slick flyers. I'll tell you what. You want to talk about artistically and, and put together from a marketing perspective? Expert. I mean, they could have come right out of Madison Avenue. And it was high gloss, and in the front of it, it showed a professionally done picture of a presumably married couple jumping up and down on the bed together, and it was titled The Joy of Sex. On the back... It was an advertisement for a startup church coming to town, and they advertised just like this. They said, we're a church for people who don't like church. 55 minutes in and out, guaranteed. We're going to have loud music, free coffee, free snacks, safe program for your kids, and we guarantee you will never be made to feel uncomfortable. That first Sunday, 900 people showed up to that church. When we got together as, as pastors in the community and looked at our attendance numbers for that Sunday, we had the lowest attendance in years because all of our people went to that church. It's consumer church at its finest. And everybody wants to pick on the religious leaders of Jesus' day for their hypocrisy, but much of that criticism is deserved. It's, it's deserved. Pharisees, just no good. But what about the people? No one really considers that perhaps the priests were under pressure from the people to change things to make it easier on them. Yesterday, a friend of mine posted on social media on a pastor's group I belong to that just got hired by a church. His first board meeting, Saturday before church. He, he arrived on a Wednesday, sits down on a Saturday before his first, for his first board meeting. The board told him, you have two years to double our church attendance or you're fired. We're going to find somebody else. And that's, that's what a lot of church, the, the church board, a lot of pastors face today. Thankfully not ours. James hasn't come to me with that yet. Okay. <laughs> Just making sure. But many pastors face these kind of ultimatums from their church boards. Be at this number next year or we'll look for somebody else who can get there. So the temptation for that pastor to compromise is huge. And many churches and even whole denominations have gone down this road in the last 20 years. And most pastors, they're stuck. They have no other marketable skill other than a theology degree. And they have families, they have mortgages, they have car payments, they, just like anyone else. So they have to bend a little to the will of the people. And what happens is that often, slowly those people will go from worshiping God to being consumers of a religion. From worshipers to God to consumers of a religion. And listen, you know, I've, I, I think about this all the time. Ways to get people in the door. Ways to, to promote Jesus into our, in our community. I ask people. I talk to people. You know, not just about this church, but just about Jesus. And, and, and you know, what they would like to see in a church and, and different things like that. Even here in Trempealeau County, probably the mecca of Lutheran religion in, in western Wisconsin, we could grow 
a non-denomination or even an AG church, it would be actually very easy. I'm going to show you how to do that. James, hit that um, next video. Some of you, you can't before. stop it. It's coming to a town near you. It used to be called contemporary. Some call it relevant. We're so cool, we call it contempervent. Young hip guy welcoming all with graphic tee and cool glasses. I welcome everybody with arms wide open, revealing my tattoo so you know I have a past. Quirky transition to band. Invite everyone to stand. Let's do it. This is the song that everyone knows. It's the song that everyone knows. My new song. just want to invite the ushers up as we prepare for our offering. Hmm. Feel free to give if you feel led. It's between you and God, but we're tracking it. One man has all I have all the answers. Showing a picture of a puppy and or a baby from an impoverished third world nation. Speaking softly to draw you in. And then emphatically, driving home my point. Long pause. Whispering. Repetition. Still pausing. Pained expression. Long prayer so that the worship leader can get back on stage. church you will be lifted high and challenged to grow we call that grotivation you call this sunday morning that's obviously satire about the um, church growth movement today but you know, if we hired a professional marketing team, do our ads, send out 20,000 mailers going out every week to every house in our county. We hire some professional paid greeters that are specialists in making people um, feel welcome, hand them some free Starbucks coffee on the way in. Hire a professional worship band that plays really loud music with just a little spiritual death, but a whole bunch of emotion. 
turn down the lights and use lighting and fog machines to set the mood, let people sit down during worship and watch and don't encourage participation. Maybe even a professional designer team to make our graphics and pop. Use 3D, uh, 3D technology and even holograms I'm starting to see. And they're showing holograms in the fog that they're using. Are you saying that this is what you're doing? No, I'm saying that this is what people are doing. And then we can even get a team to water down the sermon. Make it a self-help lecture lasting about 12 minutes. We'll be at hundreds and hundreds of people in a few years. But then we have to face a whip-swinging Jesus. And me in particular as the pastor. Jesus' reaction to the condition of the temple in his day was as much an indictment to the worshiper as it was to the people taking advantages of the laziness of that worshiper. And I want to end this morning with what I think angered Jesus the most. It's where it happened that angered Jesus the most. It happened in the court of the Gentiles. Within the Jewish temple, you had several areas. The inner and most, most important was the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant stood. This is where the Shekinah glory of God rested on the mercy seat of that altar. That's where the priests entered once a year to shed the blood of an animal to cover the sins of the people. Then right outside, in between there is a heavy curtain, and here was the holy place. This is where the priests went. This is where they took the bread and, and, and trimmed the candles, and, and it had to deal with the priests singing praise to God in, this, in the holy place. Then next was the court of the, of, of the men. And any man of proven Jewish heritage who had been through his bar mitzvah, bar mitzvah meant that he'd become the son of the laws. Essentially, it was their confirmation or their catechism class. They could worship there. Beyond that was the court of the women. The women who had gone through the bat mitzvah became daughters of the law. They could enter there for worship. And then you had the court of the Gentiles as the last area. And that's where all this commotion was going on. The court of the Gentiles existed for the seeker of God. It existed for anyone who wanted to come and know about the God of Israel. Teachers would be out there. Evangelists would be out there. Pastors would be out there to introduce them to the correct faith in Yahweh God. And that is where all this commotion is going on. It had crowded out the court of the Gentiles. So that the first thing a seeker of God would come and see is people being fleeced in the name of their religion. Is it any wonder why Jesus went crazy? Zeal for your house will consume me, the Bible said. Let's all stand. We've talked a lot about the Jewish temple but let's just bring it home to us. Neither the temple in Jesus' day nor this church exists for those in attendance here. We don't really exist for us. It's, it's, it's great we're together. It's great that we get to see each other every week or, or twice a week if you come on Wednesdays. It exists for them. For everyone on the outside of this wall. This church exists as a testimony 
to the goodness of God and his faithfulness to our community. And in order for God's spirit to move into our midst and to bring in a harvest, we need to be worshiping Christians, not consumer Christians. A consumer Christian asks the question, what do I get out of this with the least amount of effort or cost to me? But a worshiping Christian asks, how can I use what God has given me in my time, my talent, or my treasure to see his kingdom come in my family, my neighbors, my workplace, and my community? So I ask you this morning, are you a consumer or are you a worshiper? And I know this is a hard message, but it's the only event in the gospel where Jesus gets angry and physically violent. So it behooves us to ask, why did that affect you that way, God? And if Jesus were to step to our stage today and immediately bring every deed into judgment regarding both our private and our church worship, would he be standing here with a whip or would he be standing here with a reward?